Welcome to this week's episode of For What It's Worth. I'm your host, Blake Melnick. This is part two of It Really Is All About You, my interview with Ayelet Barron, renowned futurist and award-winning author of the Fuck the Bucket List trilogy. In part one, Ayelet and I discussed her soon-to-be-published third book of the trilogy, Fuck the Bucket List for the Health Conscious. Our conversation focused on Ayelet's journey of discovery from a corporate executive with one of the world's largest technology firms to becoming a digital nomad and guide, helping people around the world recognize their power in order to become conscious leaders, creators, and agents of purposeful and meaningful change. In this part of our interview, we discuss the concept of flow, the challenge of change, the wisdom of Jerry Garcia, and we explore some of the societal structures which prevent us from realizing both our heartfelt desires and our potential to be innovators and lead a healthy and meaningful life. Things like desire for recognition, education, inherited values and beliefs from another time in history. Please join us for It Really Is All About You, Part 2, For What It's Worth. I wanted to talk to you about the concept of flow, and you're going to have to excuse my pronunciation. (laughs) This gentleman has the (laughs) hardest name to pronounce, but I believe it's Mihai... Chick sent me Hai. He's Italian by birth, a philosopher who's credited with identifying or coming up or writing down the concept of flow. And I've always found the whole idea of flow so interesting because I think everybody can relate to it if you describe it in the right way. Why is flow so important? Flow is really important because flow is natural, it comes from nature, it's not fabricated. You can't tell a storm to stop. (laughs) You can tell your mind to stop. Flow is a natural thing. A dear friend of mine wrote one of my favorite books called Trusting the Currents. It's a visionary fiction book, and it's really timely for this time in history. It's pretty incredible. To me, flow is about trusting the currents. One of my big loves in life is the ocean. And looking at the currents and being able to trust them, even though we know a hurricane can come in, a storm can come in, and it could create major havoc, and it has. We have many proof points for that. But ultimately, it goes away, and we get to to start over and rebuild. And so being able to trust the currents or trust the universe is really important. And I'm not going to get so much to the philosophy of it, but more in the practical way of where I took the wisdom of that book from many years ago. What I learned is God watches man make plans and then he laughs because we try to control so many things. We've been brought up with this need for perfection. Think about beauty. Beauty doesn't flow. You've got people creating different body parts just to be more beautiful, to be acknowledged, to be recognized. I've been around in my life. I'm very grateful for this life that I've had because I've been around very poor people who uh, may have not had material positions, but they were so rich in their imagination, in their curiosity, in their willingness to trust the currents. And they have inspired me more than people who've had a lot of material success. I've seen many broken people flying around in their private jets, but there's not that much there. And this need not to be in flow, the need to control, the need to fear. I did a lot of research for the books and people don't believe that the people who have a lot spend much of their life in fear of losing it. 
And so when you're in flow, this is like a great way to talk about I'm six days away from becoming a digital nomad. I know where my next two steps are, but beyond that, I have all these ideas of where I think I'm going to go, but I'm opening myself up to flow and to see what, what emerges. It doesn't mean that I don't have ideas, but I don't want to be so stuck and say, I'm going from here, I'm going from there. And it's funny, like when I post things online and the first question people saying, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm becoming a digital nomad. They're like, but where are you going? Or <laughs> I have to admit that was going to be my question too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm becoming homeless. I, I don't want to own property anymore. I always thought I'd have physical kids instead I have triplets, which are books. Right. <laughs> No one's going to really care about that little trinket that I keep because it's not going to have that same significance as if I had children and was leaving stuff behind. My goal is to help us step into our power and live healthy lives and construct a healthy world. That's my goal. I have nothing left to prove, but to be here to find ways most of the systems that we've built are not in flow. Most of the systems that we have around us, even within families, are win-lose. Yeah. And for somebody to win, somebody must lose. There's a favorite. There's the best. There's bliss. And it's funny. I, I was on a call yesterday, and this is why I love technology, because I've been able to connect with people living in Lund, in, in Spain, in the UK, in Asia, all over the world, and not feel so alone when I when I'm here, you know, by myself, of really, course, yeah. with a, I have the most amazing geographical community of people who don't want me to leave, which has been really sweet and heartwarming. But it's time to flow. It's time to go. We were on a call yesterday working on my next project, which is the epilogue of the third book, the book that you read and were talking about. And people were saying how they met me because I brought a community together. And one of the women said, oh, I met Ayala through Google. <laughs> and they were like, what? And Kay said, yeah. She said, you know, I found this list of the, the top 50 female futurists in Forbes, and I contacted a bunch, but Ayelet was the one that actually followed up. And I sent her something I was working on, and she was like, oh, my God, I'm working on that, too. Let's talk. Yes. And so that's, that's, that's being in flow, and that's what's possible, is being open to it and having dialogue, like what you're doing right now. I didn't even look at the clock and I was like, whoa, because we've been in flow. And right. I feel like I just saw you yesterday and I can't <laughs> wait to give you a hug. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll be able to see one another face to face in due course. But but I love the concept of flow. It's always been a motivating thing for me simply because again I think it's very accessible to people I mean you can keep it very esoteric but it, we all actually have experienced it we know what the feeling is like anybody that's played a sport anybody that's skied played golf written a book writing is a perfect example because of course you know what it's like when you're in that state of flow and I, I was intrigued I read a comment in your book, sometimes I would, instead of following a structure about how to write, I get up in the morning, I have breakfast, I sit down, I write, you would wake up in the middle of the night and just start writing because you were motivated to write. And these are the opportunities, I think, for getting in that state of flow when you recognize that those ideas have to come out now. You can't schedule them sometime later in the day or later in the week. They just must come out. And so I think everybody knows that feeling where when you're in that state of flow, it's almost effortless. You don't have to think about it. It just flows. 
It just works, whether it's in a sport of golf where sometimes the game seems easy (laughs) and you don't know why, and you're in that state of flow and then you lose it. And you try to get it back. And I think that that's the challenge for us uh, human beings. And I would say within workplace organizations too, that are trying to build cultures of innovation and transparency is how do we create opportunities? How do we design in opportunities in our culture for people to remain in that state of flow more often? So I think it's a, I, I really love the whole concept of it. And I like the way you've described it because I do think it's super important. And again, it's accessible. So that's, that always makes it a, a good thing. You know, this conversation can go on for days, Ayala, you know that. I just wanted to add something that, that you said that really um, resonated with me because, and, and you said this earlier too, Blake, and I, I think this is a, a great insight that you had. I think that when it comes to, to work, we get so caught up in best practices and someone else's mm-hmm. best practices. And I remember when I left my job, I did a lot of speaking and people would call me up and say, hey, could you come and talk to us? You come from a tech background and strategy and you're looking at the future, could you come and talk to us? We really want to know what Google's doing and what Facebook's doing and the list would go on. And I would talk to the person and I said, well, I'm not the right person to do that. And they say, why? I said, well, because are you Google? Are you Facebook? Are you any of these companies? Do you have that ability? Let's talk about who you are, where you want to go, what your problems are, where your opportunities are and what we can create. But I think, again, the programming has been to be the best, to be on the list. When I found out how many companies buy their places on the list, which nobody will talk about, Mm -hmm. lists are not random. (laughs) There's a lot of work and effort that comes into being the best place to work that we don't talk about. It's not politically correct to talk about it. And so... When you're working towards the goal of being on the list, of course, you're going to make the list. And so when you actually make a list that surprises you, your book doesn't win an award unless you submit it for an award. And I submitted and and won an award on the first book, which is great, but there's a disclosure there. And I'm not winning a whole bunch of awards for ones I don't submit to or I get rejected for, but there is an entry point. So I'm in a place where I pay to get that first award. I mean, I'm honored to be part of it, but there was an entry point. Someone who doesn't have that capacity to do that can't play in that field. And that's what we're talking about, right? We don't all have the same level of access. Oh, that's true. And so we have to look at things and we have to stop with the best practices or just because he has it and she has it. It's where we started the conversation. I need to go here because my neighbors or my friend did it. But I hate doing that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, you make a great point. And and I'm certainly well aware of all of these accolades, awards, and things like that. I've been part of them as well at a corporate level. When you think of things like Entrepreneur of the Year and Fast 50, you pay for that. (laughs) You hire a PR firm who advocates and puts together a proposal. And then they say, yeah, that works. You're going to be nominated. So I think it is important people understand there is a cost of entry. And it's not just random recognition, unfortunately. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the biggest challenges I've faced in my career as a chief knowledge officer, and I've been doing this a long time, is getting organizations to understand the need to focus their knowledge management strategies on knowledge creation rather than solely on knowledge capture, curation, and transfer. These are important, but here's the thing. 
Knowledge is an infinite commodity with a limited shelf life. So being reactive and placing too much emphasis on preserving old knowledge without, of course, determining whether that old knowledge is actually relevant anymore, uh, doesn't yield much of a return on investment. Focusing on knowledge creation and designing the cultural conditions to ensure everyone in your organization is enabled to advance knowledge in the course of their day-to-day work ensures that you continually move beyond best practices and you remain on that trajectory of innovation. I think that gets to the heart of things because we didn't come to this planet to suffer. We came here as powerful creators and we had the shit knocked out of us since we were kids. Like you're supposed to have the perfect wedding with the perfect spouse, with the perfect things that happen. And then after you have your day, you get up in the morning and you go, wait a second, what did I do? (laughs) Who is this person? What's going on? And in some cases, you spend years with them and you're in bliss, like joining a company. They could be the number one company on a list, or it could be the number one best-selling book on a list. But when you start experiencing it and you understand that it's not healthy for you, but everyone else says it's the way it's supposed to be, then you feel like a freak. Right. And, and the people that are, I love that Steve Jobs, you know, it's for the crazy ones, the weird ones. That's who I'm for because I'm crazy. I'm weird. I'm odd. At work, the executives would see me coming down the hall and they go, troublemakers. Why? Because I ask questions because I don't accept things as they are. You hired me to be a strategist. A strategist doesn't say yes. I want to talk about structures. I think it was Edward Deming that said it. It might not have been him, but it was somebody within the quality management movement to paraphrase that our structures are perfectly designed to produce the outcomes we're experiencing. If we want different outcomes, we need to change the structures. And I always thought that was a real pearl of wisdom. I've heard Drucker say the same thing in, in different words. But this is what's, I think, holding us back and what a lot of the focus of your book is on structures. I'm going to read you something. When I was going through the book, I would put the book down and then I would write what I thought I heard, and in my own words. So it's a bit of a paraphrase. Much of our lives and the stress and depression we feel is because we're being guided by values of others, values we've inherited and adopted to make sense of the world. So rather than listening to ourselves and determining what are the values that guide us, we look for heroes. We look for false prophets that can provide us with the answers that are already deep inside us. And many of the structures that guide our existence are old and outdated. And anything that separates us from ourselves and from others is bad for us. Let's talk about structures a bit because that was particularly uh, impactful for me to read because I think we've all fallen victim to this, as you point out. We are given a set of structures when we're born. We're not born with those structures, but we're told this is the way we must dress. This is the way we must act. These are the values we must adhere to. Everybody goes through this. And there needs to be a point in your life where you say, wait a minute, are these my structures or are these my values and beliefs or are these the values and beliefs of others? And I think everybody goes through this period of angst. And if you don't, it can be incredibly destructive on your life. At one point, you sort of rebel. And that's why I think rebellion, certainly when you're young, is a good thing. When you're a child, you see the absurdity of the structures that you're being asked to adhere to. And as a young child, I was a rebel for most of my teenage years because nothing that I was being told made sense to me. 
And so I would rail against it, I would rebel against it, not necessarily in the most productive way either, until I realized, wait a minute, if I keep doing the what I'm doing now, and you made this point, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to get the same results. Einstein definition of insanity. So I realized that in order to get where I really wanted to go, I needed to learn how to play within the system, to play the game, so to speak. Let's talk about that a little bit. I think when you're a kid, and I, I love what you just shared because it is reflective of the manual of success that we get indoctrinated and programmed into. You have to look at what is education, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why aren't children being taught about the human body? When we start learning about the human body, our own bodies in school, it's preventive. It's like how not to get pregnant, how not to get STDs, and it's fearful. And much of the education that we have, we don't learn about how to build our immune system. I mean, I think it's starting now, and I mentioned a couple of people in the book who are working on this, which I'm super excited about. But to date, and what I've been personally exposed to, it's all been a lot of useless stuff. I have to say, I went through the education system, and where I ended up had nothing to do with what I studied, which is so fascinating. And it taught me some structure so I can take a lot of information and distill it. That's what I learned from it. So I think structure is important and I don't think we look enough into it because I do think we need to look at the root cause of things. And when you talked earlier about beliefs, it's like knowing who planted the seeds of those beliefs, of those ideas into your mind. Are they yours? Are they someone else's? Are they a parent, a teacher, a religious leader, a a relative, somebody who bullied you. I I know somebody, there's stories in the book that in first grade, she had something that uh, nobody knew about. And in first grade, her teacher ridiculed her. She's still holding on to that. That's still a major trauma for her. Mm -hmm. And we don't talk about this stuff. I never learned about this stuff. I didn't even know what inner work was and what it meant. And now it's trendy and popular. I think it's really interesting to look at things and understand what the root cause, what the structure is, because we need structure. Some people say hierarchy is bad, but in a family, there's hierarchy. The baby relies on whatever parent. It it can't be self-sufficient. There is a certain hierarchy there. So we need a level of structure. But to me, the root is remembering that we created all of this apart from nature and the seasons, and everything around us, we created marriage, we created taxation, we created work, we created royalty. It didn't just appear. And if we're such powerful creators, why can't we create healthy lives? Why can't we create healthy systems? Why can't we create systems that work for us versus us working for them? So this is a time where each of us can either choose to lead a healthy life, understand the source of everything and look at the structure of your life, but then also step into our power if you're ready or interested and create the the healthy systems for the world, like education, like mental health, like alternative health, like how we govern ourselves, economics, finances, We don't have to accept it the way it is. We could thank our ancestors and say, hey, thank you for creating all this stuff, but we don't really need a monarchy anymore. (laughs) We don't need to be scared of everything because if you are aligned with nature, you will see abundance. 
and there is abundance. I have been to places that are deserts, and with a human imagination, people created agriculture. We are such powerful beings. Why don't we use the gifts that we're given and create healthy structures and systems? It's a great point. I think that we've outgrown our, our current structures. They're the product of a different age and product of the industrial age. All these systems, of course, are interconnected and are designed to support one another. And you make that point in the book that our education system is designed to support what we believe the world of work should be and careers and so on and so forth. Education is interesting. I've seen lots of changes at the corporate level and in businesses and how businesses are operating, flattening hierarchies and, and to your earlier point, allowing people within the lower echelons of the organization to actually make decisions, to recognize that they actually have the knowledge to solve the problems that are keeping the executives up at night if they only were to give them a voice. So here we see all these changes taking place within business organizations. We see new cultural models emerging, new ways of engaging with employees, a recognition that employees can contribute um, to the success of the organization in the context of their day-to-day work activities. But then on the other hand, I look at education and I see this sector as being one of the most resistant to change. And in fact, they're becoming decoupled from what's going on out in the workplace. At the heart of everything that I've done in my career, I am at root a teacher. And I've taught in a number of incredibly innovative programs and schools at all levels, from high school right through to university. And while I've been involved in some incredibly innovative things, there is still this fundamental barrier to deep change. And I also believe that underlying this resistance to change is a fundamental misconception that young people are not capable of creating new knowledge or building new knowledge. Much as it was assumed in business organizations that employees at a lower level within the organization were not able to contribute to the success of that organization, Our education system is based upon administrators attempting to decide, independent of the students themselves, what students need to know. We treat the mind as a container and fill it with this stuff, content essentially, that we've determined kids need to know in order to be successful in the world, and then we make sure that everybody learns the same stuff. We create a common curriculum, which completely disregards exceptionalities, challenges, cultural differences, and the life experiences of students. We believe that knowledge is siloed within subject matter disciplines, which is akin to the specializations within the industrial factory model. Student-centered learning really is, to a large extent, a bit of a myth in our public education system. I mean, it does go on, and there are examples of it, and I've seen them, and I've been involved with them, but Why can't we seem to get our heads around the need to change how we think about education? So again, if you are in the current model where most of humanity is in the current timeline, you can't see the amazing things that are happening in education. There are amazing people doing amazing things and more people will do it. It's kind of like, did everybody start? asking question, where does this food come from? (laughs) Is it organic or not? Or did people continue just buying? But you go into a 
supermarket now and the food tells you there's no toxics, there's no garbage. It doesn't tell you what's in it. It tells you what's not in in it because we poisoned ourselves so much. And we've been doing the same thing. We've been poisoning our minds. We've been poisoning um, our children with beliefs and ourselves. And so we can't see through it. This is my issue with a lot of the futurists doing the future of work. Instead of asking kids and finding out what does work mean in the future, we're predicting the future of something we don't even know. And and we're talking about robots and all that. But if you talk to the kids, there's so much wisdom there, which is why I I share in the book the story of how the Power Rangers, it took them seven years to happen. And everybody rejected it. The networks rejected it. The advertisers rejected it. It never would have been made if it wasn't for one woman who was leading Fox Children Station Network at the time and decided to take a risk. And she decided to get, I think it was 13 episodes during the summer when kids did not have devices (laughs) and were actually outside playing. And they had to sit in front of a physical television to watch this. I think it was in 1993. And the kids loved it. It is the longest running, most popular children's show in the history of the world. And this is what happens when we ask kids (laughs) and help them shape the future. Again, it's not the best example, but it's one example. If we talk to the kids, if we listen to the kids, and I think businesses could really learn from kids, especially when they have seen their parents sitting at home during this lockdown (laughs) about what work should mean in the future. They've never had a front row seat because the parents that used to be on the road traveling all the time that had no contact with their kids have for the past year been with their kids. And who is focused right now on having a conversation about what the future of work really means with the children? Who is really focused on education? I've talked to young people here in my community who all of a sudden saw what their kids were studying in school because of homeschooling and said, I don't want this to be taught to my children. They weren't aware before of what they were learning. So we talked before about opportunities. There are people out there like Michael Strong, the stuff that he's doing with his new school expanse and the conversations that he's having with young people is amazing. I, I have Monica Douglas and a couple of other people in the book that are really focused on the next generation of education. And if it's something someone's passionate about, reach out to them, have a conversation because If we're going to wait for some magical education system just to fall into our laps, we're going to be waiting for a really long time. But if we care and love our children, we will be stepping out of the current unhealthy paradigms to create what we need most. And it's up to us. No one else is going to do it. I love that point. It really is up to us to take those those first steps. And this is why I see the pandemic as an opportunity because we're seeing stress uh, fractures and that's a good time to start promoting some of these new ideas and thoughts about uh, what we'd like education to be and the purpose of learning and the purpose of work. In my role as a member of the Council for Innovation and Commercialization with the Conference Board of Canada, we've supported a number of conferences on the topic of the future of work. And to your earlier comment, there was a lot of presentations about AI and robotics and how they're going to dictate the future of work, how technology is going to replace human beings and force us out of the workplace. 
And then one young presenter stood up and said something quite remarkable. It was simple and succinct. The future of work is what we choose to make it. It's not something that is thrust upon us and we need to adapt to. We can take an active role in shaping it into what we want it to be. Absolutely. That's that, Again, this is wisdom from youth. It's all around us. We just have to have the curiosity, the imagination, the passion to be able to step into our power and, and trust our hearts and, and see where it takes. Because you could wake up in the morning and be in constant panic about this. But a lot of the people working on the future of work are also looking at a certain segment of the population. They're not looking at the people who have to hold three jobs to feed their families. Right. And no matter how much you want to manifest or attract, I can want to manifest a book, but boy, did that book kick my ass. (laughs) And with all the best intention, it's a lot of work. And so what is our definition of work? I think that's a structural thing in flow that we get a chance to examine. But if you don't want to question everything, if you just want to accept the status quo, then that's what you're going to get. You're going to get reruns and you're going to get sequels because human history repeats itself. And being a student of humanity, which is what I feel I am, all I see is like we're better than them, off with our heads. Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead says, when you pick the lesser of two evils, it's still evil. Yes. (laughs) I love that you're quoting Jerry Garcia because uh, (laughs) I, I don't know if you've seen the documentary on The Grateful Dead that's on Amazon, uh, A Long Strange Trip. But I was thinking about this as I was reading your book, especially the section on false prophets and gurus. Jerry Garcia became a guru, but he absolutely hated it. I th- I believe it's really what killed him. The pressure of people mm-hmm. believing that he had something important to say that would change their lives, and he never wanted that mantle at all. He was the reluctant guru. And you watch the documentary, it's quite fascinating. It's a very deep dive into, you know, human psyche as much as it is about the band and Jerry Garcia. But you really get that sense that he just didn't want to tell people what to do. He wanted them to figure it out. More and more people were being drawn to him as a messiah, but he never had the complex. So anything to do with the Grateful Dead, I find fascinating. (laughs) Just because they stepped outside of all the norms of rock and roll. And they did things that nobody else did. And that's what the emerging timeline is inviting us to do, is to create a healthy world and to look at unity, not conformity and not uniformity. I love having conversations that expand without needing to be right, because there's always something to learn. And you talk about this desire that a lot of people have to always be right. Why is that? Why do people do that? I find myself falling victim to it too, so I'm not standing on the outside looking in. Well, because that's how we were programmed. That's our our conditioning. We have a society of hero victim, of bullies, and I'm saying draw outside the line. You can choose to step out of it. If you're in an abusive relationship, of course, that's difficult and you need help. But when you're not and you start asking questions and looking at things, then you understand, or let's say you're in a conversation and you find yourself really taking a side. It's by design. And in in the first book in the trilogy, I talk about this new concept, healthier concept of neutrality. And neutrality doesn't mean that you don't care, but neutrality means that this polarization that is in our society 
you understand how you're reacting to something and how you step into your own neutrality. There's some people around me that are very adamant that they know what's right for me. And I'm like, how could you know what's right for me? You have no idea. You could say what's right for you. And so when they start kind of preaching to me, I'm like, at one point I just go, you're right. And they kind of look at me because they know me and they go, what are you talking about? Like, come on, Ayala, like, let's go. You know, I'm like, you're right. You're right. Whatever you're saying, you're right. I said, now what? Now what are we going to do about it? Now that you're right, what's possible? If you look at the United Nations SDGs, to me, they're limiting because what they do is they look at society's biggest problems and how we address them. Well, let me tell you, poverty, access to water human trafficking. They have been around our entire existence. They have been problems to be solved. What if we took a different approach? What if we looked at the problems and we said, what's the opportunity in here? And what structures can we create to address them? Because what we're doing is just putting more band-aids on things that don't get resolved. I used to support an organization to end human hunger, and I supported them for years. And every year they gave me the same statistics. X number of kids go to bed every night. I'm like, wait a second. (laughs) I've been supporting you for 10 years, and the same number of years go to bed hungry? Where is the root cause of where that hunger comes from? And obviously you're not addressing it. And that's what we tend to be doing. Instead of looking at the root cause and saying, okay, what's possible here? Yeah, I think we do that so often. We don't do a root cause analysis using an engineering term. (laughs) We just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again because we never get to the root of the problem. I could go on and on, but that's what I've loved about this book, Ayala. It's helped me consolidate a lot of my own ideas and my own thinking as well as reflecting on my own self and how I internalize and externalize certain things. I have one other question about the books in general. I haven't read the first two, I will, but after reading the third one, I, I, I can't imagine what's hasn't been covered (laughs) in in books one and two. So it seems to me the third one is, I don't know whether you need to read all three, do you? I can tell you that it's a personal kind of thing. I had somebody who read the first book and it was like, oh my God, it's by my night table and I'm highlighting things and I feel less alone because of it. And the first book is really about discovering your own wonder dealing with your um, limiting beliefs, dealing with the baggage that you're carrying around with you. So it's got a different focus. The themes are all um, interconnected and whole. And the second book is really about trekking into the unknown. It's about being able to let go and to purge and cleanse things from ancestors, things that we're hanging on to. And I've had somebody who, when she read the second book, said, uh, oh my God, I, I could have started with the second book. And then I had somebody who's read all um, three books now. And she said, oh, this third book, that's the book. You could have had that one as the first book. <laughs> so I don't have prescriptions to give. The books are about your journey. They're not a memoir. They're not a self-help book. They're really about me holding your hand as you go through your own journey. And I say up front, I think in all three books, that the books are not for everyone. Because if you want to keep the status quo, you don't want to question anything, these books aren't for you. Go read James Patterson. Go read A Good Mystery or whatever. But if you're really looking to explore what's possible in your own life 
and in the world, these books are for you and, and you feel like you're one of the visionary creators of the emerging world. Because beyond the books, I'm starting to build a platform to connect the creators. And so there will be a place for us to have more conversations. And I'm going to big cities now. And I have no fear. I have rational fear. I'm not going to walk into oncoming traffic. But I, I don't have a fear because I, I, I choose not to carry that limiting belief of fearing stuff. Another area in your book that was very prevalent is this whole idea of fear. And fear is something that really impacts all of us to a certain degree. And fear of change in particular, I think everybody's afraid of change because it calls into question your values or your beliefs. And if those beliefs are no longer valid, then what is your purpose in the world? Where do you go from there? I think that's a fear that a lot of people have right now. I, I can feel it in all the dialogue around this pandemic. There are those that are saying this is a great opportunity to go in a different direction. Others are going, we can't do that because my whole life is built around the direction or the path that we were on before the pandemic. So fear is a strange motivator. The biggest virus we have is the virus of fear. The fear that we're not good enough, the fear that we're not enough, all the judging and the blaming, anything that causes division is unnatural. And there's natural fear. I've had bears in my yard. I'm not going to go hug them. You know, there's a natural fear, but there's this irrational fear, this unnatural fear. That's why I think moving from what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what's appropriate and inappropriate to understanding what's healthy and natural and what's unhealthy and unnatural is so important. And so what fear in your life is healthy and natural and what is unhealthy and unnatural? I think what I loved about the book, Ayala, is I think this book is for everybody. And you're right. Not everybody uh, will read or take away everything that you've written and say, this is what we need to do. But I think there's enough in this book that everybody will say, you know what? I've thought about this before. And now it's reminding me to think about it again. <laughs> Reflection is so important. We've been doing a lot of research on identifying what leads to innovation capability and enablement. And a lot of what we have discovered through our own research and through a number of pilot studies was the things that you mentioned in the book, mindset number one. Innovators have a mindset for continually advancing and improving things. They also have the knowledge. And when I say knowledge, I mean understanding gained through experience. They're experimenters. They're always asking what if. When you can draw parallels to what you're working on or what you're thinking and with what somebody else has written down, I think that's incredibly powerful because you know you're not alone. Well, to me, that's the definition of co-creation. It's not necessarily some physical thing that you could point to. I hope that these books spark people into our power. And that's the co-creation because we're doing it together. It's about your own curiosity and your own innovation about what you want to create during this lifetime. When we allow ourselves to trust our hearts, to trust our intuition, as we start become real innovators, because we've got that mindset of an adventurer willing to trek into the unknown. Well, sometimes where you start is not where you end. And I think you, right. people have to be open right. to that. Now, I know you're not a planner and you don't like making lists, but <laughs> is there another book? Is there going to be four <laughs> quintuplets, five? No, I'm working on building this online platform, which is the epilogue of the book. And I'm working right now with some people to co-create it and we'll see where it goes. But 
My goal is when the book comes out on uh, May 27th to have a splash page uh, for heartpickings.com live. It's not right now. And to really work on creating a community for heartfelt people who pick themselves. So that's what I'm focused on next. And it has three phases. We'll have more information on the website and in the epilogue. So I'm super excited about it. And I also have the virtual book club with High Tide that's being launched. The first one will be a soft launch in June and it will run every month. And we're doing it for all three books where you can read the book and get exercises and have a virtual community of people. And I'll come in to answer questions and to have conversations. So I'm super excited about it because my goal with these books is to reach millions of people who are ready to step into our power and to create healthy lives in a healthy world. So that's what I'm focused on. And I'm open to opportunities. I'm looking for some tech partners, people who are ready to trek into the unknown and doing my own work to build a community. And I hope someday I can come back on this show and say, hey, (laughs) this is where I went. This is where I fell down. Now I want to try a lot of different places and see where my community is. I'm hoping you'll uh, provide us with some of these links to these initiatives that you're starting up so we can put it on the show blog and anything else that uh, you want people to know about, possibly join in. That would be great. And I I do hope you will come on the show again. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I enjoyed the book. I highly recommend it to our listeners. It's just a good read and you don't need to read the whole thing. You can skip over parts of it with the things that just don't resonate with you because I know there will be other parts of the book that do. So Ayala, I wish you all the best in your future adventures into the unknown. I'm sure there'll be some great stories and we'd love to have you come back and uh, share some of them with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for creating this podcast. Thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you for being a healthy creator on the planet. You give me inspiration and I'm grateful for it. And I look forward to whatever is possible. It's our time. We were born for this time in history. And what you said is true. I had somebody who picked up the second book, opened it on page 177 and told me that it changed his life. He is in government and what he took from there has created ripples in what he's doing. So you don't have to read the whole thing, but there's something for everyone in how you choose to interact and the choices that you make in life. This concludes part two of It Really Is All About You with my guest, Ayelet Barron. Please join us next week for an episode of The Space in Between, a bit of a musical interlude called The Campfire Jesus Playlist with guest Oliver McQuaid. For what it's worth. <laughs>